Uh, if you could turn your Bibles to Luke chapter 5. We're going to be looking at verses 27 through 32. Okay, 527. After this, he went out and saw a tax collector named Levi sitting at the tax booth, and he said to him, follow me. And leaving everything, he rose and followed him. And Levi made him a great feast in his house, and there was a large company of tax collectors and others reclining at the table with them. And the Pharisees and their scribes grumbled at his disciples, saying, Why do you eat and drink with the tax collectors and sinners? And Jesus answered them, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Let's pray. Father in heaven, uh, we just thank you for this day that you've given us, for the opportunity to gather here and to worship you and to hear your word. And I just lift up uh, Pastor Andrew as he brings it to us, uh, give us open hearts to receive it and to understand the application and uh, just to live more for you each day going forward. In Jesus' name, amen. So verse 27 says, after this, if you remember from last week, uh, the after this is to the, to the wonder of everyone, uh, he, uh, the Lord Jesus Christ, uh, forgave the sins of the paralyzed man and also empowered him to get up and walk. And he did that in a crowded house. And so verse 27 says, after this, he went out, and uh, the gospel of Mark adds the fact that Jesus went out by uh, the, the seashore, the seashore of Galilee. And I, I can only imagine that that must have been very refreshing uh, to get out of that cramped house um, and start walking alongside the seashore, and the breeze, the refreshing breezes must have been very, very wonderful. Well, as Jesus is walking, it says in verse 27 that he saw a tax collector named Levi. Uh, Levi is also known as Matthew, and Matthew is the one who wrote the first book of the New Testament, right? And so Jesus is out walking by the seashore. Um, Mark also adds the fact that he's teaching, so he continues his teaching ministry. And as he's walking and, and teaching, he sees Levi. He sees Matthew. Now that verb, saw, where it says, after this he went out and saw, that verb is very, very rare. Uh, and it, it doesn't mean like a quick glance or passing glance, kind of like when you, if you're on your phone and you, and you scroll through uh, social media, you know, like kind of a passing glance or some of that. Uh, it's more like a long, thoughtful, penetrating gaze, uh, sort of like at a theater. Uh, it's the kind of gaze where you begin to understand the person and, and can even almost see into their soul. And, and their character. It's that, it's that kind of gaze. And I believe that, that uh, Luke, by inspiration of the Spirit, uses that, that rare verb for saw so that we would know that it's no accident that Jesus chose or selects Levi to be a follower of him. 
Very far from being an accident, uh, that, that verb for saw shows that Jesus consciously and purposely singles Levi out. And that's important because verse 27 goes on to say that Levi is a what? He's one of those tax collectors. The guy that everyone loves to what? To hate. Remember that Israel is under the authority of, at that time, the greatest superpower ever known, uh, the Roman Empire. And it's very expensive uh, to run an empire of that size, and so they need taxes. And what they would do is they would assign tax collectors. How? Or they didn't assign it. How how did one become a tax collector? Uh, There was no school that you go to. There wasn't some kind of class you could take or anything like that. The way you became a tax collector is basically by franchise, uh, that Rome would say uh, that they, that they uh, need uh, taxes in this area, and they would throw it out to the highest bidder for a specific region or area, and you would, you would bid on that. And if you're the highest bidder, then you're the one who collects taxes for that area, uh, for that region. As long as you met uh, whatever the specified requirements were for that region, as long as you collected all that Rome demanded for that region, anything above and beyond would go into your pocket. And so tax collectors were very famously known to be extortionists, to be given to bribe, and to be filthy rich off the backs of others because they would charge more than they had to charge, downright stealing. Uh, So tax collectors were often extremely wealthy through ungodly means. That's why, if you can remember earlier in Luke, uh, when we were talking about John the Baptist, and John the Baptist, there's a great crowd around him also, and he's baptizing, and a number of different uh, people come to him, and some of them are tax collectors, and he calls out to those tax collectors to bear fruit and keep in repentance. They say, what does that look like for us? And what John the Baptist says to them in Luke 3.13 is, collect no more than you were authorized to do. That would show true repentance. That would show true faith in, 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 in Christ. Uh, Dr. Riken, I thought this was a helpful summary that he gives concerning tax collectors. He says, quote, Because tax collectors collaborated with the Romans, they were considered traitors. Because they collected more than they had any right to take, they were considered robbers. And because they had so much contact with Gentiles, they were considered unclean. In the Jewish mind, uh, tax collectors ranked right up there with lepers and pigs. If you remember how they thought about lepers from a a few Sundays ago. So I think you get the idea, right, that tax collectors, uh, like Levi, were the most hated uh, and despised men in Israel. So Luke 5, 27, when, when people saw Levi in his toll booth collecting taxes, maybe counting his money, they did not love him, right? Uh, they did not love him. They, they hated him. And in their eyes, Levi was the ultimate sinner, the ultimate person who's ripe for God's judgment. That's what they saw when they saw Levi. They, they saw a guy they loved to hate. But here comes Jesus, you got to love this, right? Verse 27, here comes Jesus, and he saw Levi. He, he gazes on him. Uh, he, he, he thinks much on him, continually sets his eyes upon him. And he saw Levi, he saw this tax collector as a person. And he's not filled with hate 
He, he doesn't despise him. He doesn't call down fiery judgment like people would have thought that the Messiah would. No, as, as in the case with the leper where he touches the leper or the paralytic where he confesses or forgives his sins, here Jesus again does the unthinkable. He, he consciously singles out Levi and says to him, follow me. Follow me. What does Levi do? Verse 28, leaving everything, he rose and followed him. That should sound familiar. Back in Matthew 5, verse 11, uh, you you find the example there where the the fishermen, Jesus calls upon them to follow me. And in verse 11 it says, Luke 5, 11, when they had brought their boats to land, they left everything and followed him. Without hesitation, the fishermen left their fish, and without hesitation, Levi left his very profitable business. You need to know this morning that that is exactly what Jesus demands, as he calls all of us to be his disciples, to be Christians, to be committed to him, to decisively break from sin and follow continuously after him, that Jesus demands that we leave everything and follow him. And so Jesus says in Luke chapter 9, verse 23, if anyone, so there's, there's the invitation, if anyone would come after me, if you're thinking about that, if you're pondering that about following me, Jesus says, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. That's leaving everything, right? That's dying to self, dying to sin. Do that daily and follow me. And in Luke chapter 14, verse 33, Jesus says this, even even just as clear, if not clearer, as Luke 9.23. But Luke 14.33, Jesus says, Therefore, any one of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. You cannot be my disciple. You cannot follow me if you will not renounce all that you have. That's the call to discipleship. That's the call to Christianity, to die to sin and follow hard every day for the rest of your life, as long as God gives you breath after Jesus. When Jesus calls you to follow him, he's not asking that you would just give him a couple hours out of a a day or two of the week, like Sunday. But Jesus demands that you are wholly and solely committed to him in everything all the time. Jesus is to have priority over family. He's to have priority over finances. He's to have priority over our friends, priority over our future. Everything must be second to the Savior. I stress that because it seems that many want to live their lives as if Christ exists to follow us. You ever pick up on that sometimes? The way people talk about Jesus, it's as if he exists to to follow us. As if Jesus exists to satisfy our demands and and make us happy. And that's a self-serving religion that sets up Christ as nothing more than some kind of commodity in life that will enhance your life and, and make you happy. Empower your dreams. But the reality is, when, when Jesus calls us, he calls us to leave everything and follow him. He does the leading. We do the what? We do the following. We give up our will, and we obey him, and we gladly lose our lives for him. 
That's, that's the call to discipleship that we find with, with Levi. And as I study this and thought about this, I, I, I believe as, as we see uh, how Jesus calls Levi, I, I see we see there a great example of how Jesus does that in our lives, a great picture of who Jesus wants to save. In fact, that's, that's the first point this morning as we're kind of working through this text is who does Jesus want to save? Who, do, who does Jesus want as his disciples? And, and we see from this call of Levi that Jesus wants unlikely candidates. He wants the weak. He wants the outcast. He wants the unworthy. Again, think of it. None of us would choose Levi ever. He would not be on our radar. He's a tax collector. We'd love to hate him. That's how he would be on our radar if we lived in that day and age. He's an unlikely candidate. And the same is true of, of all of Jesus' first disciples. They're, they're, they're a rather motley crew of, of individuals. Think also of Paul, uh, the Apostle Paul, who writes concerning himself in 1 Corinthians 15, 8 and 9, that last of all, he says, as to one untimely born, Christ appeared to me. I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. He persecuted the church of God, right? You're not expecting that guy to be an apostle. You're not expecting that guy, through the Spirit, to write a great majority of the New Testament. So I think we see in Levi this profile, this prototype, or this, this concept, this is who Jesus wants to save. This is who Jesus wants to work through. These are the disciples he wants, and he's demanding to, to follow him. It's unlikely candidates like me and like you. I'm often filled with awe and wonder and amazement that who am I, right? Who am I that he would save me? Who am I that he would call me to follow him? I've shared with you a little bit before my, my past. I mean, I was filled with hate and anger, filled with it. I thought God's word was a joke. I would often read it just to argue with my dad, who was a pastor, to just try and convince him how ridiculous all this is, right? So filled with hate. Hated myself, hated everyone else, hated God's word. I was also filled with the fear of man. I would barely talk to anyone. I avoided people, and I was pretty good at it. You get good at that when you practice that a lot, avoiding people. I could easily go through a day at school with, without talking to anyone, and that was the best day it could ever be. I dreaded when the teacher would call on me. <laughs> I was very, very shy, very self-conscious. Again, I could hardly speak uh, to anyone, didn't want to speak to anyone. My mom and dad would never have ever, ever said, man, Andrew, that guy's going to grow up and be a pastor, and he's just going to love people and try and help them to know Christ. Never would they have thought that. Were they praying that? Did they long for that? Sure. But humanly speaking, no way. No way. I was terrified. Like I said, I was self-conscious. If Jesus is going to make disciples of all nations, it wasn't going to be me. I want nothing to do with him, nothing to do with anyone else. I was happy, minding my own business, sitting in my sin, doing my thing. No one would ever have ever chosen me or thought of me to be a disciple. I never would have, again, pursued that in my own life. And I think the same is true of Levi. He's happily sitting in his toll booth, counting his money, and sitting in his sin, doing his thing, when 
Jesus took the initiative and he sees him, he understands him, and he calls to him, follow me. And Levi, in obedience to the sovereign, gracious, efficacious call of Christ, leaves everything and follows him. Praise God for the initiative of the Father and the initiative of the Son. Apart from the seeking and saving grace of Christ, we would all forever be lost in our sin. And we, we find passages after passage after passage that teaches how God seeks us. We don't seek him, he seeks us. And so John 6, verse 44, Jesus says, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. And so as we think about verses 27 and 28, it should be very, very obvious that the difference in Levi's life is not Levi. The difference in Levi's life is the sovereign grace of Jesus in his life. And the same is, is true of, of my life. The, the fact that I'm standing up here right now preaching God's word or that I, I have the privilege of being a pastor here at Orangeville Baptist Church and, and pastoring for, for roughly 20 years now and, and teaching God's word and loving God's people, that's, that's no testament to me whatsoever. I'm nothing. That is testament to the grace and the sovereignty and the beauty and the wonder of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Remember what the Bible says in 1 Corinthians 1, uh, verse 26 and following? It tells us to consider your calling, and that's talking about when, when God called you to salvation. Consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many of you were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. He chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, he, even things that are not, to bring nothing, things, things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And it goes on to say in verse 30 of 1 Corinthians 1 that because of, because of God, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness, sanctification, redemption, so that as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. And so we see from, from Levi and this, this gracious call of Levi, how, the kind of sinner that, that Christ wants to save. We, we see sinners who are unlikely and, and unworthy. We see sinners who, who maybe feel weak. Maybe that's you this morning. Maybe this morning you feel weak. You feel small. You feel foolish. You feel like you don't have it all together. Uh, you feel unworthy. Uh, and, and you wonder, man, am I really the kind of person that Jesus wants to save? Am I really the kind of person that Jesus wants to use and work through? Does he really want me? And the answer is, Yes. For reasons we can't begin to understand, praise God, the answer is yes. God chooses the foolish, the weak, and the despised. If I can pick on, pick on my dad for a moment, I, I sometimes share analogies from his life, and he, he was in the ministry for over 50 years. Uh, and I shared with you how I was very self-conscious and terrified of people and hated people. I don't, I don't think my dad ever hated people. My dad struggled immensely with the fear of man. And he tells a story when he's 16 or 17. He's only been uh, saved for a short amount of time at that point, but very, very shy, very, very self-conscious. And uh, somehow manages to go on a, a youth event 
at least that's what I understand it to be as I, as I remember the story. Uh, but he, he goes on that youth event, and, and afterward, the, the, the bus driver's dropping everyone off, right? Well, my dad is so quiet and so fearful of people that this bus driver doesn't even recognize that my dad's in there. And the bus driver actually goes home and is, is getting out of the bus and just, just kind of happens to turn back, and there's my dad. He's so terrified of people, I think he would have sat there all night. Like He, he wasn't going to speak up and say, hey, what about me? <laughs> I need to go home. And yet he goes on to labor for the Lord 50 years as, as, as a pastor, as a preacher. I share that to say, if you're here this morning and you're wrestling with this idea, can, can God use me? Does he even want me? I'm, I'm so weak. I'm, 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 whatever is in your mind, you're exactly who he wants. You're exactly who he wants. That's a wonderful, wonderful truth. That just like Levi, and just like Jesus saw him and studied him and observed him, he has studied you and observed you. He knows you. He knows your frame. He knows that you are weak. And he wants to work through you. And he is calling you, follow me, follow me, follow me. And the question is, will you pick up and follow Will you, like Levi, leave everything and follow him? Now, as we continue to make our way through that text, maybe you hear all of that, especially verse 28, about leaving everything, and you, you start to think, like, are you serious? Everything, right? Like, like, that sounds like a lot. That sounds pretty crazy. And maybe you start to feel sorry for yourself, or maybe you're tempted to feel bad for Levi. I mean, everyone hated him, but at least, man, the guy was, li- was living large, yet he had a good living. And so what's so wonderful about Levi is that, or Matthew, or Levi, whatever you want to call him, is that instead of feeling sorry at leaving his, his profession, his well-paying business, and acting like it was some kind of big sacrifice for him, uh, he feels the opposite way. How do we know that? Because verse 28, 29, what's he do? He throws a party. Levi throws a party. He leaves everything, and far from being like, woe is me, man, Jesus, that's rough. He, he calls for everything, but man, I'll suck it up. I'll go with this. No, he's, he's excited, right? He's excited. He, he throws a party, verse 29, and Levi made Jesus a great feast in his house, surrendering everything, made Levi the happiest man in the world because he gained Christ. Remember what Paul wrote in Philippians chapter 3, verses 7 and 8, where he says, whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. I think that's Levi's perspective, uh, that idea of I've, I've gained Christ. So what will it cost you to follow Jesus? It will cost you everything. I would be lying if I said otherwise. It, it may well cost you your friends, your family, your money or promotion or the praise of men, but uh, I believe with all my heart that you will find in Christ when you leave everything and follow him, you will find in Christ a surpassing, incomparable excellency and joy and value uh, in him. 
and you'll start to think about your friends and your family. You'll find so much joy and happiness and, and, and forgiveness of sin and, and the glories of Christ that you want everyone to know, right? You're going you're gonna to throw parties. And, and what I want to develop here a little bit as we move forward is I, I believe not only is, are these the kind of people Jesus wants to save, but we see here this is how Jesus wants to change the world. Jesus wants to change Orangeville Baptist Church and Orangeville community and Barry and Allegan County uh, one party at a time, you could say. One meal at a time. One conversation at a time. Because what Levi does is he throws a great feast, and watching verse 29, it says, there was a large company of, of what? More of those tax collectors, more of the same. And some apparently who were so awful that later the Pharisees called them sinners. Uh, so those are the others. I love that. I, I love that Levi is so excited about Jesus that he opens up his home to his friends so they can know Jesus. He, he wants his friends to know and trust and love Jesus, and he's going to use his home, and he's going to use his resources to get the message of Jesus to his friends. And, and don't miss that phrase, that crucial, crucial phase, phrase where it says that Jesus is reclining at table with them. It's not a typo. I shouldn't say at the table. At table is, is a phrase for fellowship. You could say honor. To, to, to recline at table with them is to honor them. It's to warmly welcome them, embrace them, and receive them, and accept them. And who are these people? Well, they're the scum of the earth if you ask everybody else. Can you picture that? Don't you love our Savior? Just reclining at table, fellowshipping, embracing, warmly welcoming the worst of the worst, the unlovely, the unworthy. I, I see Jesus with just a, a massive smile on his face, right? He's doing what he loves. Well, whenever there's a party, there's always a party pooper. And this text is no exception, huh? There's party poopers. Verse 30. The Pharisees and the scribes, right? The ones in opposition, the ones whose opposition will ultimately lead to Christ on the cross. The Pharisees and the scribes grumbled at the disciples, saying, Why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? They are not at all pleased with Levi's enthusiasm or the guest party list. If you can remember with me, the word Pharisee comes from a Hebrew word that means to separate, to be separated. So the, the Pharisees pride themselves on separating from people like tax collectors and other sinners. They, they go with the idea of guilty by association. So they're not going to be, I don't know, 10 feet or 100 feet within that they're going to stay as far away as they can for that because that way they're separated and they're going to be separated and they're going to condemn. That's what Pharisees do. They think guilty by association. They pride themselves that they would avoid people like Levi. How does Jesus respond? Well, verse 31, he says, those who are well have no need of a physician. But those who are sick... I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. I would suggest to you this is the climactic moment in this text 
Uh, this is one of those great mission statements where we, we begin to understand Christ, what Christ was about, why he lived and breathed, why he came to earth. And here he announces who he is and what he's come to do. He did not come to call the righteous. He came to call sinners to repentance. Which is to say, he came to save people who needed him and knew that they needed him. Everyone needs him. Not everyone knows that they need him. So Jesus came to know those, to save those who needed him and knew that they needed him, the messed up, the broken down, the lowest of the low sinners. And to help us understand that, he uses that awesome illustration in verse 31, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. Right, if you're not sick, you don't need a doctor. If you are sick, you need a what? A doctor. I know there's probably some in our midst who are like me who kind of pride themselves on, I'm not going to a doctor, I'm not sick. You're coughing up blood, but I'm not sick, right? <laughs> if you're sick, you need a doctor. Jesus is that doctor. Jesus has the ultimate cure. He came to heal people from their sin, which is a sickness unto death, that's why he's mixing with the crowd. That's why he's at that party, at table. He's doing what a good doctor does. A good doctor spends time with the sick. He ministers where he's needed. Where else would he be? How else would the saved be saved, right? This is the Christian message. I am a great sinner. Jesus is an even greater Savior. But again, the problem with the Pharisees is what? They don't think they're sick. They thought they were righteous. And, quite frankly, they were righteous. Self-righteous. They were self-righteous. They did not think they were sinners. They thought they were good because they practiced separation. So what's Jesus saying? This is scary. Jesus is saying, I didn't come to save them. Right? I didn't come for the so-called righteous. I didn't come for people who think that they're good enough without me. I didn't come for people who think, well, I'm not that bad. I came for the people who are bad, and they know it. And he bypasses them, doesn't he? That's scary. I'll tell you why that's scary. Because Pharisees, they're not people outside the church. They're people inside the church. This is kind of where we need to do some humble careful examination of our hearts. <clears throat> Pharisees in modern day language would say things like this. Well, I'm, I'm deeply devoted to God. I, I, I rarely, if ever, miss a church service. If the church doors are open, I'm there. I, I, I studiously avoid anything that might possibly defile me. I, I pray a bunch. I, I diligently study the scriptures. I, I know my theology. Yet Jesus says to them, I didn't come for you. I came for sinners. Why? Again, because the Pharisees think they're basically good people. They think they're basically not that bad, and that's where it really becomes dangerous. You've got to wrestle with your heart this morning. Is Do you view yourself as a basically good person? Do you, when you think about yourself, do you think, oh, I, I'm not really that bad? I, I mean, again, I, 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 I read the Bible. I, I, I try and attend church. Even when it snows, I'm here, right? 
I, I, I pray a lot. I, I, I try and give money to the church. To, I, I've been baptized. I'm even a member. I'm a member of Orangeville Baptist Church. I, I'm not really that bad. And what the scripture is saying is, is, is wake up. Be alarmed. You're in for a rude awakening. Jesus didn't come to, to call the righteous. He didn't come to save people who think they're good, who, who, who think they're not that bad. He, he came to save people uh, who, who, who know that they're sick. He, Jesus saves one kind of person, a sinner who knows that he or she is a what? A sinner. Of course, the truth is we're all sinners. Jesus sees right through us. The word saw again, he sees our hearts, he sees our motives, nothing's hidden from his sight. He, he knows all there is to know about us, and looking at us, he would affirm, Romans 3.10, no one is righteous, no, not one. If no one is righteous, then we all need a Savior who is righteous. All of us are sick. We have a sin that leads to death. We all need a doctor. But again, the problem is most people don't think they're sick. Most people don't think they're sinners. Most people think they're basically good, and because of that, they are excluded. Jesus doesn't save them my word, that should frighten us. You see, the question is not, is Jesus able to save? The question is, do you recognize that you're a sinner, and will you humbly confess that to him and find his forgiveness full and free? Are you able to get down on your knees and confess that you are among the sinners that Jesus came to save? Are you willing to say, I'm not that good, I'm bad, I, I'm, I'm sinful to the core, and I, I'm a sinner, and I, I, I know that I'm a sinner? If so, you're the one he came to save. If not, watch out, repent, humble yourself under the mighty hand of God. God resists the proud. Do you know what the word resist means in James 4, 6? I think it's 4, 6 or 4, 8, where it says God resists the proud. That word resist is a military word that means God takes up arms against you. If you're proud, you don't recognize your sin, God opposes you. But he gives grace to the what? The humble. Well, let this text work in your heart and humble yourself. Humble yourself before him. Recognize your sin. Heed the call of Jesus. Follow him and leave everything. And I don't know about you, but my word, my heart delights in verse 32 and verse 31. I praise God. I cannot praise God enough that Jesus ate with tax collectors and sinners. I cannot praise God enough that Jesus came to heal the sick. I, I rejoice that Jesus came to save sinners who know they are sinners. I can't thank Jesus enough that he was willing to risk ridicule and associate with sinners like me who for 17 years of my life didn't think I was a sinner and didn't care about sin or God. What a Savior, right? Don't you praise God this morning, Christian, that Jesus came to seek and to save sinners, to bring them to repentance. That, that Jesus spent time with sinners, that he associated with sinners, that they might come to saving faith in him. And I, I want to ask you this morning, if we, if we rejoice in that and we, we see how Jesus did that, I, I want to ask you, shouldn't we do the 
shouldn't we do the same? If Jesus sought to save the lost by spending time with the lost, shouldn't his followers? Isn't that part of what it means to to follow him, to leave everything and follow him? Listen to what Jesus prayed in John 17, verse 15. He prayed to the Father, I do not ask, speaking about his disciples, I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. So this might be an ouch and not an amen this morning. I've wrestled with with how to say this this morning. But I'm very fearful that the spirit of the Pharisees is, is very alive in Christianity today. I'm very fearful of that. That often we're like the Pharisees, separating ourselves from the world, as so as not to be contaminated by the world, I fear that we condemn sinners instead of having compassion on sinners and pointing them to Christ. I believe we must learn from the Savior who associated with sinners without conforming to their ungodly ways. I think that often in the name of separation, we sin by not showing compassion and not contact, having contact with those who are lost. I think we need to do a lot of repenting. The scriptures say that we are to be salt and light. There's a great book by Rebecca Pipper called uh, If We're Salt, It Needs to Get Out of the Salt Shaker, right? What good is salt if it doesn't get out of the salt shaker? All right? What good is light if it's not out in the midst of darkness? Again, I'm going to lift my father up as as an example here. He probably hates that I'm saying all this about him this morning. Well, he would love it if it means others love Jesus more because of it. I'll say it that way. Maybe he's watching right now. Sometimes he does. My father is a great example of this. My father retired, retired from pastoral ministry five five or so years ago. Maybe it's more than that at this point. Time flies. and often when, when especially pastors retire, they move down to Florida. And they, they, they go to live in a Christian retirement home or resort. And I asked my father before he retired if he was, what he was kind of thinking, if he was planning anything like that. And, and I'll never forget his response. He, he basically said he didn't want to spend the rest of his days rubbing shoulders with a bunch of Christians all day. that he was going to spend whatever years or days God had for him living with sinners and being with sinners, getting to know sinners and point them to Christ. And so he's spent the last, I don't know, five, five or six years living in this mobile trailer park, and he's gotten to know almost everyone in that trailer park, and I tell you, he shared the gospel with almost every single one of them. <laughs> That's Jesus. That's what Jesus is calling us to here, right? If I can embarrass Merlin, huh? Merlin, for a number of years after retirement, goes to work at Home Depot. Why? He wants to rub shoulders with sinners, right? He wants to be where they are so he can point them to Christ by his example and his words. If you don't know the story of Dave Stout's dad, I'd encourage you to catch Dave sometime today or this week and ask him, what's the deal? Why did his dad sell peanuts? 
is essentially so he could bring church to the sinners, so he could be where the sinners are, rub shoulders with them, and love them with the gospel. Isn't that the application of our text? If we love that Jesus did this, that, that he, he came to seek and to save, and he, he came to uh, not call the righteous but sinners, and he, he had fellowship with tax collectors and sinners, shouldn't that be our model as we seek to follow him? And don't mishear me, I'm not saying we should join in their sin, wink at their sin, ignore their sin. If, if our friends get drunk, I'm not saying get drunk with them. You know, I, I'm not saying we should just hang out with sinners for the, the sake of hanging out with sinners. Jesus didn't do that. Jesus didn't hang out with sinners and say, hey, I'm okay, you're okay. Far from it, sin was horrific to Christ. Uh, it's so horrific that he left the glory of heaven. He became one of us. He associated with us. He sat with us. He talked with us. He ate with us. All the while, calling us to do what? Repent, repent, repent. And we are to do the same. We should not, must not, cannot isolate ourselves from the world and condemn them. Like Levi, we are to think and pray and strategize how we can leverage our resources and lives so that our friends can know Jesus. We should constantly be thinking and praying, how can we do the most eternal good for the most people in the power of the Spirit to the glory of God? And like Levi, we should be throwing parties and inviting everyone to come and see this Jesus who saves. This is how we change the world, one party, one meal, one conversation at a time. So do I, I, I just ask you this morning again to humbly search your heart. Do, do you share the love of Jesus for the lost? Do you condemn them or do you have compassion on them? Are you willing to risk associating with them and being called a friend of sinners? Well, what a wonderful thing to be called. Are you filled again with condemnation? or compassion for people who aren't like you, who don't think like you or look like you, and that's increasingly overwhelmingly the case, is it not? We need to be more like Jesus, who is out walking by the seashore, and again, that word, I just, I love that word, in verse, verse 27, he saw. He's walking the seashore, and he saw Levi. He was alert, he was awake to the people around him. How about you? This is how it challenged me this week. How am I doing at looking and seeing? Do I have the eyes of Christ? Am I seeing the people around me who are hurting and need help? Or am I so focused on what I need to do this day, right? I got these blinders on. This is what I need to do this day. I, I can't even think about these people. Those are obstacles getting in my way, right? Or are they people to love and be interrupted by, to see them and to love them with the love of Christ? In Greek mythology, we learn of a man who stumbled upon a pool of water, and upon seeing his reflection, he, he fell in love with his image. <laughs> and so enamored with his image was he that he never, ever left the beauty of his own reflection. And he died by that pool of water. If you don't know, that's known as narcissus. I think narcissus is alive and well today. 
Like narcissists, we often only have eyes for ourselves, and, and again, we're annoyed and bothered by anyone who might get in our way. Meanwhile, people all around us are desperate for help, desperate for the Lord. They don't know it, but as we love them and point them to Christ, by God's grace, they will learn to know it. The mission is to make disciples. We don't accomplish that by quarantine. We don't make disciples by isolation. We don't make disciples by separation. We don't make disciples by condemnation. We make disciples the way Christ made disciples, compassionately spending time with them, rescue operation, seeking them out, fellowshipping with them, challenging them, believe in Christ. May God do a great work in our hearts as we seek to model him in this way. May he give us eyes like his with gaze outward And may he give us hearts like his that press toward, not away from people on the margins. Which one are you? Do you have that Christ-like gaze? And do you press toward the people who are hurting? Or do you back away? Where do you need to repent and become more like Christ? All God's people say, amen or ouch, huh? I'm going to pray, and I invite the worship team to come up as I, as I do so. Heavenly Father, we thank you, we thank you, we thank you for the Lord Jesus Christ, who came to seek and to save the lost, who came and had fellowship with sinners. How dare he? How wonderful that he did. How we praise you that he did. Help myself, help each one of us here this morning to model our Savior. Help us to love the hurting around us. Give us eyes to see the hurting around us and give us hearts to move towards them with the love of Christ. And Father, the most loving thing we can do, we know, is to share the gospel with them compassionately, persuasively, uh, persistently. So Lord, help us to do that. And Father, forgive us of of the sin that's often within our hearts where we condemn sinners instead of compassion. We separate from them. We quarantine and isolate from them instead of spending time with them and fellowshipping with them. Oh, Father, change that within us. Again, give us your heart. Give us your eyes. And Lord, if there's anyone here today who your spirits are working on them and they're beginning to see that they are a sinner and needy of the Savior, oh, Lord, fly to them. Go to them, Father. Rescue them. Save them. Deliver them from unrighteousness. Give them saving faith in you that they might uh, know your righteousness, know your forgiveness. And and Lord, help each one of us here again to be agents of change in our community and to be changing Orangeville Baptist Church and our community one party at a time, one, one conversation, one meal at a time. And may you be glorified because of it. And we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.